Chapter 11 of The Beetle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. The Beetle by Richard Marsh. Chapter 11 A Midnight Episode. The weather out of doors was in tune with my frame of mind. I was in a deuce of a temper, and it was a deuce of a night. A keen northeast wind, warranted to take the skin right off you, was playing catch-you-catch-can with intermittent gusts of blinding rain. Since it was not fit for a dog to walk, none of your cabs for me, nothing would serve but pedestrian exercise. So I had it. I went down Park Lane, and the wind and rain went with me, also thoughts of Dora Grayling. What a bounder I had been, and was. If there is anything in worse taste than to book a lady for a dance and then to leave her in the lurch, I should like to know what that thing is. When found, it ought to be made a note of. If any man of my acquaintance allowed himself to be guilty of such a felony in the first degree, I should cut him. I wish someone would try to cut me. I should like to see him at it. It was all Marjorie's fault. Everything past, present, and to come. I had known that girl when she was in long frocks. I had, at that period of our acquaintance, pretty recently got out of them. When she was advanced to short ones, and when, once more, she returned to long. And all that time, well, I was nearly persuaded that the whole of the time I had loved her. If I had not mentioned it, it was because I had suffered my affliction, like the worm, to lie hidden in the bud, or whatever it is that the fellow says. At any rate, I was perfectly positive that if I had had the faintest notion that she would ever seriously consider such a man as Lessingham, I should have loved her long ago. Lessingham! Why, he was old enough to be her father. At least, he was a good many years older than I was, and a wretched radical. It is true that on certain points I also am what some people would call a radical, but not a radical of the kind he is. Thank heaven, no! No doubt I have admired traits in his character until I learnt this thing of him. I am even prepared to admit that he is a man of ability in his way, which is emphatically not mine. But to think of him in connection with such a girl as Marjorie Linden? Preposterous! Why, the man's as dry as a stick, drier, and cold as an iceberg. Nothing but a politician, absolutely. He, a lover? How I could fancy such a stroke of humor setting all the benches in a roar. By both education and by nature, he was incapable of even playing such a part. As for being the thing, absurd. If you were to sink a shaft from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, you would find inside him nothing but the dry bones of parties and of politics. What my Marjorie, if everyone had his own, she is mine, and in that sense she always will be mine. What my Marjorie could see, in such a dry as dust, out of which even to construct the rudiments of a husband was beyond my fathoming. Such like agreeable reflections were fit company for the wind and the wet, so they bore me company all down the lane. I crossed at the corner, going round the hospital towards the square. This brought me to the abiding place of Paul the Apostle. Like the idiot I was, I went out into the middle of the street, 
and stood a while in the mud to curse him and his house. On the whole, when one considers that it is the kind of man I can be, it is, perhaps, not surprising that Marjorie disdained me. "'May your following,' I cried. It is an absolute fact that the words were shouted. "'Both in the house and out of it no longer regard you as a leader. May your party follow after other gods. May your political aspirations wither, and your speeches be listened by the empty benches. May the speaker persistently and strenuously refuse to allow you to catch his eye, and at the next election may your constituency reject you. Jehoram, what's that? I might well ask. Until that moment I had appeared to be the only lunatic at large, either outside the house or in it, but on a sudden a second lunatic came on the scene, and that with a vengeance. A window was crashed open from within, the one over the front door, and someone came plunging through it onto the top of the portico. That it was a case of intended suicide I made sure, and I began to be in hopes that I was about to witness the suicide of Paul. But I was not so assured of the intention when the individual in question began to scramble down the pillar of the porch in the most extraordinary fashion I ever witnessed. I was not even convinced of a suicidal purpose when he came tumbling down and lay sprawling in the mud at my feet. I fancy, if I had performed that portion of the act, I should have lain quiet for a second or two to consider whereabouts I was and which end of me was uppermost. But there was no nonsense of that sort about that singularly agile stranger. If he was not made of India rubber, he ought to have been. So to speak, before he was down, he was up. It was all I could do to grab at him before he was off like a rocket. Such a figure as he presented is seldom seen, at least in the streets of London. What he had done with the rest of his apparel I am not in a position to say. All that was left of it was a long, dark cloak which he strove to wrap round him. Save for that, and mud, he was bare as the palm of my hand. Yet it was his face that held me. In my time I have seen strange expressions on men's faces, but never before one such as I saw on his. He looked like a man might look who, after living a life of undiluted crime, at last finds himself face to face with a devil. It was not the look of a madman, far from it. It was something worse. It was the expression on the man's countenance, as much as anything else, which made me behave as I did. I said something to him, some nonsense, I know not what. He regarded me with a silence which was supernatural. I spoke to him again. Not a word issued from those rigid lips. There was not a tremor of those awful eyes. Eyes which I was tolerably convinced saw something which I had never seen or ever should. Then I took my hand from off his shoulder and let him go. I know not why, I did. He had remained as motionless as a statue while I held him. Indeed, for any evidence of life he gave, he might have been a statue. But when my grasp was loosed, how he ran. He had turned the corner and was out of sight before I could say, How do? It was only then, when he had gone, and I had realized the extra, double-express flash of lightning rate at which he had taken his departure, that it occurred to me of what an extremely sensible act I had been guilty in letting him go at all. There was an individual who had been committing burglary, or something very like it, in the house of a budding cabinet minister, 
and who had tumbled plump into my arms, so that all I had to do was to call a policeman and get him quadded, and all that I had done was something of a totally different kind. You're a nice type of an ideal citizen, I was addressing myself. A first-chop specimen of a low-down idiot, to connive at the escape of the robber who's been robbing Paul. Since you've let the villain go, the least you can do is leave a card on the apostle and inquire how he's feeling. I went to Lessingham's front door and knocked. I knocked once, I knocked twice, I knocked thrice, and the third time, I give you my word, I made the echoes ring, but still there was not a soul that answered. If this is a case of a seven- or seventy-fold murder, and the gentleman in the cloak has made a fair clearance of every living creature the house contains, perhaps it's just as well I've chanced upon the scene. Still, I do think that one of the corpses might get up to answer the door. If it is possible to make noise enough to waken the dead, you bet I'm on to it. And I was. I punished that knocker until I warrant the pounding I gave it was audible on the other side of Green Park. And at last I woke the dead, or rather... I roused Matthews to a consciousness that something was going on. Opening the door about six inches, through the interstice he protruded his ancient nose. Who's there? Nothing, my dear sir, nothing and no one. It must have been your vigorous imagination which induced you to suppose that there was. You let it run away with you. Then he knew me and opened the door about two feet. Oh, it's you, Mr. Atherton. I beg your pardon, sir. I thought it might have been the police. What then? Do you stand in terror of the minions of the law at last? A most discreet servant, Matthews, just the fellow for a budding cabinet minister. He glanced over his shoulder. I had suspected the presence of a colleague at his back. Now I was assured. He put his hand up to his mouth, and I thought how exceedingly discreet he looked in his trousers and his stockinged feet, and with his hair all rumpled, and his braces dangling behind, and his nightshirt creased. Well, sir, I have received instructions not to admit the police. The deuce you have! From whom? Coughing behind his hand, leaning forward, he addressed me with an air which was flatteringly confidential. From Mr. Lessingham, sir. Possibly Mr. Lessingham is not aware that a robbery has been committed on his premises, that the burglar has just come out of his drawing-room window with a hop, skip, and a jump, bounded out of the window like a tennis ball, flashed round the corner like a rocket. Again Matthews glanced over his shoulder, as if not clear which way discretion lay, whether fore or aft. Thank you, sir. I believe that Mr. Lessingham is aware of something of the kind. He seemed to come to a sudden resolution, dropping his voice to a whisper. The fact is, sir, that I fancy Mr. Lessingham's a good deal upset. Upset? I stared at him. There was something in his manner I did not understand. What do you mean by upset? Has the scoundrel attempted violence? Who's there? The voice was Lessingham's, calling to Matthews from the staircase, though for an instant I hardly recognized it, it was so curiously petulant. Pushing past Matthews, I stepped into the hall. A young man, I suppose a footman in the same undress as Matthews, was holding a candle. It seemed the only light about the place. By its glimmer I perceived Lessingham standing halfway up the stairs. 
He was in full war paint, as he is not the sort of man who dresses for the house. I took it that he had been mixing pleasure with business. It's I, Lessingham, Atherton. Do you know that a fellow has jumped out of your drawing-room window? It was a second or two before he answered. When he did, his voice had lost its petulance. Has he escaped? Clean. He's a mile away by now. It seemed to me that in his tone when he spoke again, there was a note of relief. I wondered if he had. Poor fellow, more sinned against than sinning. Take my advice, Atherton, and keep out of politics. They bring you in contact with all the lunatics at large. Good night. I am much obliged to you for knocking us up. Matthews, shut the door. Tolerably cool on my honor. A man who brings news big with the fate of Rome does not expect to receive such treatment. He expects to be listened to with deference, and to hear all that there is to hear, and not to be sent to the right about before he has had the chance of really opening his lips. Before I knew it, almost, the door was shut, and I was on the doorstep. Confound the apostle's impudence! Next time he might have his house burnt down and him in it, before I took the trouble to touch his dirty knocker. What did he mean by his allusion to lunatics in politics? Did he think to fool me? There was more in the business than met the eye, and a good deal more than he wished to meet mine, hence his insolence, the creature. What Marjorie Lindham could see in such an apostulum surpassed my comprehension, especially when there was a man of my sort walking about who adored the very ground she trod upon. End of chapter 11 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com